Job 36 is where we turn this morning. Job 36, and then into chapter 37, the ending of the fourth speech of Elihu to his friend. I suppose he's a friend. Hopefully he can still be considered a friend of Job and all the other friends as well, the comforters that were near about him. Exodus, or excuse me, Job 36 and verse 26 is where we pick up. In the, in the fourth and final speech that Elihu's been delivering, he's been saying all sorts of helpful things, correcting things to Job in the course of this time, beginning in chapter 32, of course. And he began by saying, hey, Job, you say you want God to speak to you. He has been speaking all along and all your affliction. He's there. He is teaching you. He is so much uh, paying attention to you. He's revealing his kind attention upon you, not picking on you, as Job has said. Why don't you pick on somebody your own size? Didn't exactly say that, but, but he had that kind of attitude. And Elihu's saying, no, God is talking to you. Are you listening? Listen to what God is saying. In his second speech in chapter 34, he says, God's ways are just. How dare you suggest that God is doing you wrong, that he is acting unjustly toward you? No, God always, always, always does what is just, both to the righteous and to the unrighteous, to the wicked. And we can trust him and we can rest in that knowledge. In the third speech, he said, you know, Job, you're wrong about how you think piety works and what piety is all about and that somehow it's, it's all about you. It's not about you. It's about God. And you need to recognize that God is over, over these things and, and you live for his glory and you live for whatever if he gives and he takes away, which kind of reminds us of what Job said at the beginning. But somehow Job has gotten off the beaten path and gotten into the weeds and, and really focusing less upon God and more about, hey, I, this is horrible. This is bad what I'm going through. I need deliverance. God, when are you going to come down and, and rescue me? And he's expecting, you know, Job is expecting, I've been a good fella all my life. Why isn't God recompensing me? Why isn't God paying me back for all these good things? And Elihu says, you're wrong about that. God can give and God can take away. And God is the one that we live for, not ourselves and not what he can give to us, not the the trappings of righteousness. No, Job, Job, you're wrong about piety. In this last speech, then he's talking about God is just great just immense, just powerful, just extraordinary. Just, and the response that we should have is not finding fault with him and saying, God, you missed a spot, or God, you missed that, or God, you know, I know you're really trying about trying to do this right, but let me tell you that you got that wrong. No, would you ever dare to say that to God? No, God is great. He is immense. Now, as we get into the end of, of it's the very tail end of chapter 36 and then into chapter 37, extolling the greatness of God, In this season of life, especially, there is great pomp and circumference. I always think of that, circumstance. Pomp and circumstance, that's even been saying or or, um, played repetitively. Just ad nauseum sometimes makes you want to... But when the graduates are coming in and and parading in and so forth, and everybody's dressed in their robes and their wonderful regalia, and there's very great great ceremony and authority and uh, and rights, you know, privileges and all this kind of thing. Even more so yesterday, a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience, perhaps, uh, and that is the coronation of a king. I don't know if anybody, I don't think we, any of us here attended it, but perhaps you watched some of it or saw some, some footage of it on the, uh, the news uh, media. Wow, a king was enthroned and cor- cor- coronated and crowned king. And all the, all the, I mean, not just new practices, but 
going back centuries, tradition in the building built hundreds of years ago with, with the music from hundreds of years ago, just all these different things going on. And here he is king over the United Kingdom and all these wonderful things and the other nations that are attached to them and so forth. And you think, wow, that's just tremendous. He has all this authority, all this pomp and circumstance and everything. One of the aspects of the celebration yesterday was a flyover, a flyby of you know, the UK, the RAF, uh, lots of planes from the, you know, the, the war days of, of uh, World War II and then on and on it goes. And they had, I think there were 70 some planes planned to fly over and give homage and, and honor to the, to the new king and, and to the nation, of course, and all this. It was shut down because of rain. Can you imagine this mighty military power, a huge, a, a national, you know, inter, international uh, broker, a player on the international stage, was, it was just raining. And so you can't get these planes out there. The only, thing that, only things that were able to fly were, I think, three or four helicopters, which could manage the, the lower altitude and flying over the city, and the high-performance, oh, and I forget the name of it, the high-performance uh, jet team. I think there were six uh, jets, and they were able to, because they have the certification and all this, the know-how to do it, they were able to fly over. And so of 70-some planes and aircraft supposed to come in, they had nine, ten, maybe max. And you just think, just because of rain, just because of that, yes. Who is the more powerful? With all the, the power and authority and honor shown to King Charles III, you know, God bless him and, and save him, how much more power does God have just with vapor in the air? Just a little bit of rain coming down. Not even thunder, not even snow in the extremes of temperatures, just, just rain. And that is what Elihu comes and saying, God is great, and let me tell you about rain. And you think, really? Well, can you all do that? Can anybody here make rain or explain it? And you'll say, okay, I don't want that rain to come here. I've, I've got a picnic this afternoon or, or, you know, or, or do send rain here because we need it. There's a drought going on in Central, uh, well, not Central America, in the center of America, uh, in Nebraska, Kansas, and just a, a horrible thing. So they're praying, God, send rain. Or I remember growing up, one of my neighbors had a, a sign on their door that said, pray for snow. Now, they had it up year-round because they love to ski and they love to have that experience. But you pray for snow or you pray for rain or you pray don't snow or don't rain. And, and we have no authority, no ability to do these things. There's a phrase you might be aware of. I don't have it written right here. Um, it's often attributed to Mark Twain, but it's actually more li- reliably sourced back to a newspaper editor uh, from Connecticut, I think it was who basically said, you know, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Don't we, isn't that the case? Everybody talks about it, but nobody has the authority, the power to do anything about the weather. We can try to forecast it. We can try to say, well, this thing, you know, low pressure. and the, what, God does whatever he does. He, it's a surprisingly uh, amazing how just weather things give glory to God and take it away from us. We'll see as we go through this text. So beginning at verse uh, 26 of chapter 36, we see that a storm, let me get up here with this, a storm is, oh, this is a review. Sorry, just to get us up to speed again, you're, you're getting there and I'm getting there and you say you're slowing down. Okay, 36, in closing, Elihu seeks to exalt God, these first few verses. God does judge people justly. He is there always judging people appropriately and, and everything. And God governs creation justly. That's where we pick it up now. Not just people, 
I mean, he does everything right towards people, but toward all the creation, and especially or specifically in relation to the storm that Elihu will talk about. God judges uh, people justly. God is great in governing creation. Begin at verse 26. A storm shows who God is here at the end of the chapter. Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water, they distill rain for, for his stream, which the clouds pour down, they drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone discern the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges people, he gives food in abundance, he covers his hand with a lightning, and commands it to strike the mark. Its thundering declares about him the cattle also concerning what is coming up. So God is on display in the course of a storm. Remember how he started this verse by saying, Behold God, as he has mentioned back in verse 5, he said, Behold, God is mighty. And then again in verse 22, Behold, God is exalted in his power. And here, Behold, God is exalted. We do not know him. He's not saying that we can't know him or we can't have a relationship with him or somehow that God is beyond our comprehension. Well, he is beyond our comprehension, but we can know him. We can know things about him. How do we know things? Not by so much by discovery, but by revelation. God has communicated himself, which lines up with everything Elihu has been saying. God is speaking. Job, listen to him. Again, Job, this, this whole narrative happened before there was any written revelation. There was oral tradition. There were things, you know, the, the firsthand accounts, uh, experiences with God uh, spoken of, and yet nothing written. And so for Job to cry out, God, Show yourself, speak to me, and answer me, and all these things. And Elihu is saying, God is there. We, we can't know him, but we can see him. We can see his, his power, his, his effects upon this earth. And so we know that we can not ultimately figure him out, but we can approach him with humility, with honor, worship toward him. We can show that he is God, and we're not. We're just the, the creatures, the, the sheep of his pasture. He says here, the number of his years is unsearchable. And you think, wait a minute, does God have years? How does that work? God is eternal, right? How can, this, how, can this, how, can we, how can we be talking about years? Yes, God is eternal. He is immortal. He is the only wise God versus us who are temporal, who are uh, just, we're, we're mortal. We're going to die. We're going to be, you know, back to dust. From dust we came to dust we shall return. Earlier in, in uh, chapter 10, uh, I think it was Job was saying, are your days as the days of a mortal man or your years as man's years? We're talking about God. Are your years as man year, man's years that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? What God, you're not like us. Why are you treating us this way? Why are you treating me this way? Your years are different than us. Psalm 102 talks about the years of God. Your years are from generation to all generations. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. I mean, the earth and the heavens are gone. We think, well, this is the most stable thing we have, the earth and the heavens. No, it's going to be gone. They will perish, but you will remain. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You'll change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Elihu is saying, look, Job, you've been praying for death since day one here, right? Back in, in Job chapter 3, why was I ever or why, did, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die at birth? And why am I still alive? He's saying, you're going to die, and you've asked that death would be the solution because obviously God's not going to come to aid you. That's Job's perspective. 
but put your faith in God whose years are unsearchable. You can't figure them out. You can't probe them and find, oh, there it is. That's, that's his age or that is his years. That's his, the extent of his life. No, you can't. We can't know him ultimately. We can't figure him out. We can't explain him contrary to what the friends would claim, right? They, they, they know what God is all about and they have said that God is going to do this. If you do this, God will do that. Kind of like what you put in is what you get back out. It's not the way. God is showing his strength, his power, his majesty through rain here. Uh, Elihu says, let me give you the best illustration of how God is unsearchable. Rain. Let me tell you about it. Verse 27. He draws up the drops of water. They distill rain for his stream, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon a man abundantly. We're talking about the water cycle. And you think, well, yeah, we figured, we know all about that. We've got that figured out. We know how, you know, water evaporates off the, off the, the you know, the surface water evaporates and then it, it distills or it it uh, congeals together it, it comes together and how uh, from that then the the uh, clouds pour down rain and that, that's just how it works well we might be able to explain it we might be able to observe it even but to accomplish it to act upon it and even to explain okay why is the rain falling there but not falling here? well it's because of this really god is able to do all kinds of things to cause rain or not cause rain one of the distinguishing features of the land of Israel is that it only rains within about a four to maybe five month period of the, of the year. And outside of that time, no rain at all from like March until November, no rain at all. And you think, whoa, okay, that's predictable, right? I mean, people leave stuff out all summer in the, in the yard or whichever, knowing it's not going to rain. Maybe there'll be some dew, but most of the dew is off in the north. Read Psalm 133 to think about the dew of Hermon falling upon the mountains of Jerusalem. But if rain were to happen in the course of that time where there should not be any rain, you know it's God doing something because it doesn't. It just doesn't rain. Or if it didn't rain during the, the, rain, the time that you would expect it. The point is God determines these things. God draws up the drops of water. They distill or they come together. They congeal together. It says for his stream. There's, uh, as we have seen so much with, with uh, the, the text of Job, kind of difficult, some some suggestions. A lot of people kind of cut and paste some things back and together. I don't think there's a need to do that. And even the way that the Hebrew language works, there's a different way using the same consonant letters. You can put some different vowels in there and it means an entirely different term. And so, and we'll see that a little bit later uh, at the end of chapter 37. But what is he talking about? The stream? He's, he's distilling rain for his stream. He's bringing these, this water. He's he talking about the water cycle. Do you know how much energy is consumed in the evaporation and the falling of the rain and the energy that's produced in the clouds that generate the lightning, of course? Tremendous, tremendous. I mean, you can't, every day across the earth, constantly, this is going on. God's power is displayed in a storm. The clouds pour down the water. They drip upon man abundantly, not just a little. He is just constantly raining water upon earth. We can see this, again, the water cycle that God is in the evaporation. It says he draws up the drops of water. Who's doing it? It's not just heat. It's not just uh, airflow over water. It's, it's God doing these things. He is the one that says he draws up these, this water. And then he lets it precipitate or, or come together. And then, of course, to fall down onto the earth. He is active in all these things. And so, verse 29, can anyone discern the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? 
we can watch the clouds. It's tremendous. It's wonderful to see the clouds coming across. I mean, you, you can sit outside and, and just watch them go along the way. But to consider, wow, where is that cloud coming from? How did that form so quickly? How did that dissipate so quickly? What's going on there? Why did that happen? In so many of these things, and even as we get into God's speeches in verse in a chapter 38 and following, okay, we can figure out, especially in our 21st century, you know, we know things. Okay, we can know things, but do we know why things? We can know how and, and even what is involved with these, these different uh, aspects of life. But why? Why it happens? We can't know. Can anyone discern? Can anyone explain the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? God is the one who uh, does these things for his glory. He is spreading his power, even his stamp of, of ownership over the whole heavens. Um, Again, that flyby of the uh, the UK um, RAF yesterday had the the red, white, and blue colors, or blue, white, and red, or white, black. I mean, and they're they're essentially stamping ownership on the sky, right? Well, good grief! As soon as that beautiful color came out of the back of the jets, it was kind of just blown along and then dissipated. It's gone. Okay, you look up there today; it's not there. Where is where is the mark of authority over the sky? Nowhere. Well, we can establish a flag, right? Put the flag. Okay, do that. But God exercises and demonstrates his authority, his ownership, his rule over all the world in the clouds, in the rain. And then beyond that, we're going to talk about what God is going to talk about, constellations and things that happen outside of our, our um, earth. God is spreading. Verse 30 says he spreads his lightning about him. When God is there, it's just all this, this power, this energy, and that's, that's nothing. You think, excuse me tens, if not hundreds of thousands of volts and just one electrical charge, one lightning strike. Yeah, that's nothing. That's like a double-A battery. Uh, that's from, to God, that's nothing. He spreads his lightning about him. He covers the depths of the sea. In other words, the extreme depths that seems out of reach to humans, because it is, ultimately. The depths of the sea, we cannot send a person down there, given our current state of technology and so forth. That's deathly. To go down you know, thousands of feet, that's, that's, that's extreme, that's challenging. To go down to the bottom, the depths of the sea, no problem for God. He covers, he covers the depths of the sea. He exposes the depths of the sea. We'll see about the, the roots of the, of the sea here in just a little bit. Where he is, is uh, there probing the depth of things that are outside of our purview, outside of our knowledge. But you know what? God has a purpose in that storm. Not only does he start it, he works in the course of it, he has a purpose. Verse 31 says, For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. Again, we see that God is just, always just. He gives judgment when necessary upon the wicked, but he also gives grace or he benefits or rewards those who are righteous, who, are, who do trust in him. By these he judges people. What is it? Wait a minute. He judges people by the storm? Yes. Isn't that tremendous? And you think, well, okay, so should we see God's activity and, and in everything? Well, yes, we should. Can we understand then, because the storm is happening to that person or that country or that whatever, that God is judging them? Well, maybe. That's what it says. He judges people through them, but he also gives food. So there's a gracious element in it. One way to discuss this or talk about it is that God gives his reign upon the just and the unjust. This is common grace. And how do we determine that? Well, in, in some respects, a moderate amount of rain is a benefit to the land, to the people, to food, and animals, and all this. But just a little bit more rain is destructive. 
And you think, well, what makes the difference? God does. Why did he do it? Because he knows best. He knows exactly what he's doing. It may be for good, maybe for harm or discipline, but God knows he has purposes in the storm. Well, how's God going to manage it all? How's God going to, you know, be careful that just, you know, just enough water, but not too much or not too little? How does he know what to do? Well, verse 32 and 33 says, He covers his hand with lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its thundering declares about him the cattle also concerning what is coming up. He is the one in charge of it. it nothing gets out of his hand. You, you've heard stories, for example, in different contexts of people who, who start a, a burn, a grass burn, or, or something in their, in their field trying to manage this thing, and it gets out of hand. Uh-oh. I mean, that can be dangerous and deathly and very expensive when that happens. But God, even with lightning, goes exactly where he wants it to go. Do you think that is tremendous? We could, if we could have that power, see, no, we could never have that power. How foolish would he? He covers his hands with lightning. So many illustrations of whether they're Greco-Roman or, or Norse, whatever, gods, deities, would, are, are usually pictured with some kind of lightning about them or behind them or above them, but a lot of times in their hand. No, God is the one who covers his hands with the lightning. He commands it where to strike the mark. It, I didn't mention this, but back in verse 30, it says that he spreads his lightning about him. That seems to refer to lightning, as you could see, that, that uh, is intra-cloud or between clouds, uh, lightning that is just in the sky, just the, and it doesn't make contact to the ground. You think, how does that work? Electricity, you could explain it later. But there is this kind of a lightning that does go down to the ground, and it strikes exactly where God wants it to strike. And you think, well, why, why did God strike that guy or that person or that tree or that house? Because it delighted him. I remember we were in, in a uh, uh, choir work practice in our church in Texas, and it was, there was a storm that came through, and a lightning strike came down and went right. I don't know if it hit the, there was a steeple on the, on the building, but there was another tree right next door, uh, right outside. The tree was toast. It was fried. The, the steeple was fine, but then there were, I think there, there was at least one, maybe two little holes in the drywall inside, and it just kind of popped. And we think, whoa! Why did God do that? Because that's God's tree, because that's God's drywall. He wanted to do it. He wanted to show off his, his power. Ah, thankful he didn't destroy us, light a fire and all that, but if that were so, it's God's. God is exercising his authority over all these things. Verse 33 says, again, God is speaking. Verse 33, it's thundering, the thundering of the lightning. Lightning comes first, then the thunder. It declares about him. It tells all about him. God is on display through the power, powerful power, if you don't mind the redundancy, of the lightning. Even the cattle, somehow, they know what's going on. The cattle has to do not just with uh, you know, cows or horses or anything, any kind of livestock, any kind of property, you know, uh, animal uh, hoof stock or other other stock that we would have they they have a sense how do they know how do you know the dog is you know kind of whatever uh, even before the storm comes it's because god has revealed that to them they, they are in tune with with nature to some respect and they know when to hide or they need to they whatever and so even the cattle even the beasts of the field are aware of what god is doing in these things knowing that god controls the storm things are going to get out of hand pretty quickly in uh, chapter 37 we see the storm expose or display. This is pretty complex. How does this all happen? I mean, this storm is coming this way. We have these different fronts coming together, the moisture coming off from forever, and 
and then the rain comes, and then the, the, the different terrain, the topography, and this is where the rain, the rainwater goes, and this is how that affects, and this is what the animals are doing. How does, we can't, that's just amazing. It, it just brings us to tears sometimes trying to think through all these things. But God is complex. Why is Elihu saying this? Because Job is so full of himself and less full of God, so much focused on his own measly power and less focused on who has the real power and the authority. That's God. God's works are complex. He doesn't have to explain it to you. You've got no clue. You, you're, you're so much caught in your own suffering and your situation that you don't understand what God is doing. And you can't understand, but you can trust him. You can rest upon his that he knows. And not just know. He, he, he doesn't just know. He can do something about it. Remember, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. God does. And he has purposes in the storm. Notice Elihu's response to the storm, because I, th- I think that Elihu is not just talking about a storm kind of in a, you know, painting a picture. I think there is a storm coming upon Elihu right at this point, and all the friends. Because when you get to chapter 38, what happens? What's going on? Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of the storm that's going on. And you think, Elihu's describing what the thing that is that's coming upon him. I think. Other people think differently, and that's fine, whatever you want to do. But Elihu says, look, at, at this, at this picture of a storm or the storm itself, my heart trembles and leaps from its place. You ever had the situation where you're, you feel like your heart is in your throat, where you just, you, you can, you can feel the heart pumping and, and it's just, it animates your whole thing. That's what Elihu is describing. He is describing this amazing effect of the storm upon his own life. He is filled with apprehension he says, look, uh, my heart trembles. This is, this is amazing. This is beyond me. I can't, did any of you call for a storm? Are you doing anything like this? And it's kind of like, uh, I remember we were camping, again, Texas church days. We were out camping, and the, the host of the camping experience said, you know, better watch out for the coyotes. They come around at night. Good night. And he went to bed. Well, he didn't go to bed. We all went to bed. And then an hour or two later, he plays this recording of a coyote. Okay, who's doing that? Who's doing that? And so you just get, but he was doing it. Who ordered the storm? Who brought the, who had the authority to bring this thing? No, God did. And so we just, we tremble at it. We, the heart leaps from its place. We think, whoa, the fluttering. I mean, the heart palpitations, all the things going on. That's how Elihu's responding. And maybe Job's over there saying, hey, what's the big deal? Look at me. Look at my suffering. Look at what I've lost. And God answer me. And Elihu's saying, excuse me, God is coming He's coming. You better respond with exaltation and praise and wonder and humility. Get off your your place of worship. That's where God belongs. My heart trembles. Listen closely. Verse 2 says, listen closely. In fact, the, the thing says, listen, listen, listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Notice how many times in these verses it talks about the voice of God or God is speaking through these things. Uh, verse uh, 3, it would be, Under the whole heaven he lets it loose, and he, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice, marvelously doing great things which we do not know. Job's response should be to listen. Listen to what God is saying. He is speaking to you. And you think, well, I don't hear what he's saying through that thunder. Well, you can recognize he is controlling the lightning that makes the thunder. He is putting himself on display putting you in a rather small condition so that you'd see the glory of God displayed through these things. Listen to the thunder of his voice. It reminds you of 
John, the beloved disciple, apostle, resting upon Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, but then in Revelation 1, coming before the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and his voice was like a, like a trumpet. You ever heard a trumpet right next to your ear? That's what Jesus' voice sounded like, like the sound of, of falling waters or rushing waters. Just amazing sound, the thunderous, uh, I mean, audibly intense uh, voice of God through the thunder that is, is speaking out his, his words the rumbling that goes out of his mouth. Listen to him. I don't know what he's saying. Do you remember even when, um, I think this is John, I think it's in John 10, right? Or John, no, it'll be John 11, I guess, when or 12. Anyway, where uh, Jesus is there and he speaks to God the Father and then the God the Father speaks, I have glorified your name and I will glorify it again. And the people around said, it thundered. Because that's what it sounded like to them. They had no, no clue, no appreciation for what God was saying. But Elihu says, you listen. You pay attention to what God is speaking. God is speaking under the whole heaven. This is his domain. This is his place. He spreads his lightning to the ends of the earth. There's no place that his lightning does not go upon the ends of the earth. And you think, well, does it go to Antarctica? I don't know. But God has authority. I mean, God could bring that down there. No problem. No problem. North Pole. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Everything belongs to God. Can he extend and cover the sea, the depths of the sea with his lightning? Yes. He can do whatever he wants to do for his own glory. After the lightning, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. Now, this isn't just describing natural phenomena, giving kind of a supernatural basis to it. No, this is understanding God is on display through these natural phenomena. We're not attributing you know, the... Um, and this was a problem in that ancient Near East, and it's kind of a problem even today, where we say, well, it's not raining because of, uh, you know, we need to offer, offer sacrifices to the God of rain. Well, there might be a, a solution in that regard. If, there's, if, if God is withholding rain because of sin, well, a good, a good place to start would be to confess sin. doesn't mean that there was sin that caused that, because God has other purposes in the storm. But hey, if you confess your sin to start with, good, good for you. Maybe God has something else going on. The point is, God has all power. It's not a surprise to him. He does not, uh, uh, he does not struggle to find ways to communicate himself, or reveal himself. No, God thunders with his voice, verse uh, 5 says, marvelously. He does things which we cannot know. He is the one who puts things so uh, extraordinarily on display. He uses natural phenomena, which we can't do. I mean, we can... One of the things that marked Herod the Great and his... I mean, really amazing prowess, uh, very creative thing, is that he would make mountains where there were no mountains. You know, Herodian, Herodian was a fortress that he built just east of, of Bethlehem. There was no mountain there. He brought in dirt and rock and, and built it up and made a beautiful, really a beautiful place to, to live. It was a refuge for him. He had a strategy what he was doing. But he built a mountain where there was no mountain. He built a, a harbor where there was no, was no harbor. You look at the west coast of Israel, and it is, it is a, just a swoop. It's flat. It's a plain that goes right into the sea. There's no natural harbors along the entire coast of Israel. Unless you get up to Haifa, where that point, Mount Carmel, goes out into the Mediterranean Sea. But he built a port, beautiful, magnificent port, that received all kinds of shipments, and that's Caesarea uh, on the coast. And he, just amazing prowess. But you know, you look at that now, Herodian is kind of falling back down into the, unless it, you know, it's being maintained and so forth, but it's, it's going to fall back down into the plain and the port at Caesarea, it's, it's gone. It's, I mean, you can look, you can see a little bit of the, the foundation of the port 
the, the harbor that he built. But no, it's not in his glory, no how, no way. What is in the ocean, but also the buildings that he made around it. The point is, God owns everything. He can use natural phenomena to accomplish his will, to frustrate the plans of evildoers. He, he does it. He does things which we cannot know and understand and appreciate. Great and marvelous things. Unsearchable things, Job said back in uh, chapter 9, verse 10. We see beginning at verse 6 of chapter 37 that God is regulating all things. He is governing everything going on uh, everywhere. And you think, boy, doesn't he get tired? No, he doesn't get tired. Doesn't he get overwhelmed? Doesn't he say, I don't want to manage the earth today. You take it over for a little while, Michael or what, Archangel. No, if God were to withdraw his attention, it would cease to exist. Everything is upheld by the word of his power, Colossians 1 says. Everything that we see is managed, maintained, regulated by God, even the snow. Verse 6, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. And to the downpour of rain and the downpour of rains, you think less redundant. Well, it is for the purpose because God has power over the rains, even the specific raindrops and just the downpour that we have. The snow, fall on the earth. Rain, be strong. I've sent you out for this purpose. And you think, wow, God is doing accomplishing or accomplishing wonderful works through little raindrops. Sometimes we're a little bit bigger raindrops. I don't know. I cannot explain all that. But it says, be strong. Do the work I've entrusted to you. And you get enough of those raindrops together and you've got a flood. Amazing. God commands it. He regulates all things. And you know what happens? And this happened yesterday in the great coronation thing. If it's raining, that's going to affect what's going on. He seals, that is, he shuts or, or shuts down the hand of every man and that, that all men may know his work. Recognizing that, hey, you know, if, if, if it's not raining, we're going to do this. Or if it does rain, we're going to do that. Well, the point is, the rain determines human action. It determines what's going on. It determines not just, you know, it affects that person. Well, that person was going to do something related to this person, which related to that thing, which related to this thing, which was everything. And they, well, just that little rain? Yes, because God is, is sealing the hand of every man. He has authority through the rain to influence what goes on through human action. Even the beast. This isn't the, um, the uh, domesticated animals. This is more just any kind of wild beast, any kind of living thing. Goes into its lair and dwells in its den. Why? Because it's raining outside. I'm not going to go out there. We've got two dogs, one in particular, that does not like to get her feet wet. And she will just do anything she can to avoid that. Well, they know how to respond when it rains, and that's just how God is displaying his authority. Verse 9 says, Out of the south the storm, uh, comes the storm, out of the north the cold. There's a little bit going on there that I won't have time to get into, but the point is that God is bringing the, the storm, not just the rain and the precipitation, but also the temperature. Wow, God controls the temperature? Yes, amazing. How does he do that? And we can explain, well, it's because of this and this. But God does it, and God does it for his purposes. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Wow, God is able to bring, and especially in an ancient Near East time period, which, okay, parenthetically, this is after the flood. A lot of upheaval, upheaval has been going on climatologically. And Job, and we'll see it in Yahweh's speeches here soon, more is said about snow and ice and cold in any other book in the Bible. How do I say? More is said in Job. There we go. More is said in Job than any other book in the Bible, talking about cold stuff and frozen stuff. But here, the breath of God 
makes ice. God is able to do this, not just precipitation, but then the freezing of it. With moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He scatters the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands. Whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. So God is the one who brings the, the storm, the wind storm, which I think that's the same word. That word storm is the same what we'll see in verse 1 of 38. God speaks out of the whirlwind. The storm has to do with a whirlwind, but it's also just any kind of a storm that goes on, which kind of brings us back. Do you remember one of the things that happened at the beginning of the book was that a storm, a windstorm, came and against all the corners of the house upon which Job's children were gathered and destroyed the house, and they all died. God has his way in the storm. God calls that storm to come out out of the, out of the north, the cold, and he makes these things. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. If you ever do it, if you ever were to calculate how much, how much of moisture, how much water is in a cloud? I'm just going to read this because this, uh, I couldn't do the math for us very quickly. How much does an actual cloud weigh? A cumulus cloud, so not like the stuff we have, just one of those nice, light, white, fluffy ones. Uh, given a certain density and a certain volume, that if we were to calculate the math of how much water weighs in a droplet, we're talking about grams, uh, uh, let's see, 500,000 kilograms in one cloud. And you think, well, okay, is that like more than a gallon of Coke? I mean, a gallon, a liter of Coke? Yes, 500,000 kilograms. Kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So we're talking, and it's half, it's half that. So 1.1 million pounds, or 551 tons of water in one cloud. Excuse me, uh, the moisture he load, with the moisture he loads the thick cloud. And he holds it up. 551 tons, is that what I said? Yes, of water. They're just floating because of certain astronomical or aeronautical elements, density, and so forth. But God is there upholding these things, moving them about, evaporating the moisture from the surface water to make these things, and he changes the direction. He says, go over here and do this. He turns it around even by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands that cloud to do on the face of the inhabited earth. Verse 13 gives us some insight. Why does he do these things? Well, it could be for correction, God is disciplining his people. It could be for his world, which is to say, it could just be because he wants it to rain over there, wants to make flowers or, or cause this to happen, or for loving kindness. So we have judgment. We have just the care, the governance of his world, but also as it pertains to people, loving kindness. God is showing that he is a faithful God. Whatever his purpose is in that storm, that purpose will be accomplished. He will do what he wants to have happen. And so the response of Job should be, verse 14 and following, Job, listen, listen, give ear to this, stand and carefully consider the wonderful deeds of God. Stand and not deliver, but stand and consider. Stand and just stop talking and learn. Gain some insight here, Job. I mean, get a grip, get, get, some, you know, get a clue, as you might say it. Give ear, Job. You're saying all these things. You're, you're using your mouth way too much. You need to stop. Stand here is the idea of stop. Uh, just cease your work. And learn. Carefully consider God is on display. He's doing things. You can't explain it. You can't understand it. You can't you know, trace out what exactly he's doing. But he's doing something. You can rest in that. 
he goes back to the the analogy of the weather and so forth and, and things. He says, do you know God, do you know how God establishes them, these deeds, these wondrous deeds, and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? So many times in scripture, think back in Exodus, uh, especially around the, the sermon or the um, Mount Sinai and God coming down, that there's clouds around, thick gloom and darkness around. And Elihu's saying, look, he makes the lightning of his cloud to shine. God himself came down and was there on the mountaintop. Other times we see the, the lightning and so forth. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say, hey, there's Jesus, right? Jesus is in that cloud. A lot of people do that. And they get you know, pictures of this, that's Jesus coming. There's this beam of light and even looks like a cross or something. I don't know about all that. When he comes, we won't need people to tell each other, Jesus has come. He just came. When he comes, everybody's going to know it. Just like this morning. I didn't need to tell anybody, hey, there's lightning outside. Because everybody heard it, felt it, saw it. No problem about that. He is the one who accomplishes these things. So we, we say, do you know how God does it? How does he do all these things? Do you know how, or do you know about the layers of the thick clouds? You think the layers of the thick clouds? I don't know anything about that. I mean, again, Job is, is on earth. Now we have all kinds of instruments in the sky and, and, and over the sky that can help us discern these things. But from his perspective, I don't know how he's doing these things. I don't know how he is layering these thick clouds and working things out. And, and even the, the uh, negative charge in the bottom of a cloud and the positive at the top. And that causes, how does that even work? I think that's right in clouds. Anyway, I think it can be inverted sometimes. But how does God work these things out? I don't know. But you know, one who is perfect in knowledge, not me. Remember he said that back in, in uh, what, verse uh, 4, chapter 36, verse 4. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. It's not Elihu. God speaking through Elihu. And here we have one uh, perfect in knowledge, that's God, who is able to give understanding in these things. I mean, you, when it gets hot outside, you have no power to deliver yourself. You whose garments are hot when the land is quiet because of the south wind. When you, when you are so much a creature, so much bound to this earth, you can't begin to explain these things. And when it gets hot, you sweat and you get uncomfortable. The land is quiet. You can't do anything about it. The only thing you could do is drink a little bit of water and sit in the shade until it gets over. You can't do this. Can you, with him, spread out the sky strong as a molten mirror? When God shuts the rain and doesn't cause any rain to fall, that's God. Can you do that, Job? Can you, you know, shut down the, the rain? No, you can't do it. By the way, from verse 14 to what uh, 20, it, it kind of has the feel or the, the, the rhythm or the approach or the presentation that God himself is going to use against Job. Hey, Job, can you do this? Do you know that? Do you know about this? Can you, this kind of attitude. And so Elihu is getting Job ready for God himself to come. He says, you know, you've got so much knowledge. Make us know certain things about him. Because he says, verse 19, make us know what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. What is he saying there? You could take it this way, that Elihu's kind of teasing Job, kind of like back in chapter, 20, chapter 12, verse 2, when Elihu, excuse me, Job said to his friends, well, surely you're the people and wisdom will die with you. Teach me all you know, because I'm, I'm here with my, my uh, paper and pencil, even though I didn't have paper and pencil. And so it may be that Elihu's saying, hey, you've got all this figured out, right, Job? So teach us, because we, we're in the dark here. We don't know what we should say to God. That may be what he's saying here. Should it be recounted to him that I would speak? If a man says a word, will he indeed be swallowed up? The idea is, who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to say, God, we're going to tell you something. Obviously, this escaped your notice. Uh, is it an oversight? Understand, God, things get complicated up there in heaven. But let me tell you from my perspective that you just messed up in that regard. And Elihu says, are you serious? 
if a man says a word in that kind of t- tone of voice or frame of mind, will he indeed, will God be swallowed up? Are, are you going to correct him? Is he going to receive that from you? No, he's not going to. So Job, stop. Remember back at verse 14, stand and carefully consider. What are you saying? What are you saying about God? And then at the end here, verses 21 to the end, he says, God is glorious. Fear him. Stop using your mouth. Stop using your words to justify yourself. Give glory to God. Men do not see the light, which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is fearsome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He's exalted in power, and he will not afflict justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. He, again, says, look, when the, when the storm is over, when the light is, uh, is above the sky, or it's above the clouds, all the storm going on, lights, the sun is still up there. We can't see it because of the obscurity of the, uh, caused by the, uh, the storm. But even if we can't see that light, we can trust God. We can say God is still in the heavens. And even this, this next phrase, out of the north comes golden splendor. Out of the north. Well, no, the sun comes out of the east, goes in the west. We would never describe it in the north. But it may be that he's, he's using the north as he's used it elsewhere. And as, as it's portrayed elsewhere in scripture, not so much as a geographic designation like north, south, east, west, but north being that's where God dwells. God dwells in the north. And, and so when God comes, there will be gold. There will be the appearance of gold. Just whether the sun itself, the light that, which is bright in the skies, or God's glory himself on display, it is a fearsome majesty which is on display. You know, we cannot find him. We can't trace out the roots of where he is. The almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power. Wow, he is so much beyond us, so much over us, so much uh, outside of our ken, outside of our purview, and yet he is putting himself on display so that he, we can know just a little bit about what he's revealed to us. We can't claim to be on equal terms with him, say, you know, peers with God, but we can appreciate what he is saying to us because he is good. He will do good. He will not afflict justice. He will not, you know, uh, cause injustice or evil to happen. No, he will not call evil good and good evil, as Isaiah would say. He's not going to do that. He's, he will always produce or affect justice, and he will give abundant righteousness, not, not just a little. He will do these things. How does he do it? Who receives this? The last verse here. Men will fear him. Men should fear him. Men do fear him. It's kind of that compound thing. Are you saying they should or are or ought to? Yes, all those things. What's the proper response when we see that God is exalted in power? To fear him. Both, well, not just both, but in the, in the sense of terror, that this is God on display in the storm, that I mean, gets our attention, but also uh, an awestruck amazement that God is there on display in the storm, that God is using everything, the lightning strikes, to accomplish his will for me not just for me, for the whole world. He has that authority. Our response is to fear him, to love him, to worship him, to honor him, to obey him, to cling to him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. Elsewhere in scripture, being wise of heart or wise in heart, that's a good thing. In fact, many times we could see that being wise in heart is it's a recommended um, situation of life. That we would uh, think, for example... Um, uh, Proverbs 16, verse 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding and sweetness of lips increases learning. Proverbs 16, 21. And even the prayer of Moses, Psalm 90, verse 12 says, teach, uh, teach us to number our days that we may be present to it a heart of wisdom. But in the other sense, wisdom can be 
uh, the idea of wise in your own eyes, wise in the, the strength of your own heart, or, or relying upon the things that you've got figured out. This kind of has the attitude or the idea in 1 Corinthians 1 and, and 3, chapters 1 and 3, talking about the wise in his own eyes or wise in this age or, or things, and you think, no. God does not regard, does, God does not look at any who are wise of heart. This is that verse that had the thing. If you revocalize a vowel or revocalize a word, you get to different. Anyway, he does not regard, he does not look upon any who are wise of heart. In other words, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Job, you've been acting awful proud, awful arrogant, all about your righteousness and self-righteousness and all about what you've done and not done. Stop it. Give honor to God. Fear him. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't be all full of conceit, vain glory, because what is vain glory? It's empty, empty glory. That's what you got, Job. You are just protesting as God who judges everything all the time, rightly and appropriately. Put your hope in him, rest in him. He will accomplish everything that concerns his glory and our good. Call upon him, humble yourself before him. And by the way, get ready because God's about to come and talk to you. Wow. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the truth of your word, and how you are on display in the storm, how you are on display in lightning and thunder, and the evaporation process, and the, the condensation, distilling process, and certainly in the precipitation. And how much more, knowing that your purposes are being accomplished in those things, beyond our authority and power and, and knowledge, you're in control of everything that concerns us. Life and death are in your hands jobs, relationships, economics, personal and otherwise, are in your hands. And we trust in you and rest in you and not say, well, I deserve this and I need this and I want that. You owe me. No. What you owe us, what we deserve is wrath and justice, judgment. But you and your mercy are so kind. Please help us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that you may exalt us at the proper time. Not because we deserve it, but because you are so gracious and you are generous with your grace. Thank you for each one who's here. Please save, please sanctify for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.